This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... I have a lot of confidence in the membership of the African National Congress. So this is now, if you like, a new game. This is now a new process, an invigorated process, a renewed ANC that is also going to lead forward with uniting the African National Congress. That's South African President Cyril Ramaphosa talking about the ANC Leadership Conference. Details coming up also. Pope Francis has arrived in South Sudan for a three-day visit. And a court in Kenya has sentenced three policemen to prison terms and death. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. An eruption of joy as Pope Francis arrived in Juba, the capital of South Sudan, the world's youngest nation. The Pope is being joined on what is being called a pilgrimage of peace by Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, leader of the Global Anglican Communion, and by Ian Greenshields, moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. Together, the three leaders represent the main religious traditions in South Sudan. Before arriving in Juba, Pope Francis was in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where more than a million attended a mass he led on Wednesday. During his stay there, he called for Catholics to seek peace. For decades, more than 100 militant groups have battled across the eastern DRC, killing and displacing thousands of people. In Goma, in the eastern DRC, Tuverwundi is happy that Francis came to the country, even if he did not travel to the east. Wundi says he was especially glad the Pope had time to listen to the poorest. He says often the victims of violence are not heard and the Pope had the opportunity to learn the problems of the community. Wundi says he thinks the Pope understood the situation in the country. The Pope also had addressed the damage in Africa from the effects of colonialism and from wealthier countries extracting Africa's resources. In one speech, he drew loud applause as he shouted, Hands off Democratic Republic of the Congo and Hands off Africa. A court in Kenya has sentenced three policemen from 24 years in prison to the death penalty for murdering a human rights lawyer, his client, and their driver in 2016. Victoria Munga reports from Nairobi, Kenya. Her verdict delivered Friday, Justice Jesse Lassit sentenced police officer Frederick Leliman to death. Leliman is believed to have been the mastermind behind the murder of human rights lawyer and activist Willie Kimani, his client Josephat Mwenda, and their taxi driver Joseph Mwiruri in June 2016. Lesit described the murder as most foul and heinous. I find that the most suitable sentence for each of the accused persons is as follows. The first accused is sentenced to death in each of the three counts. 
the death sentence in counts two and three are held in abeyance. Two other former police officers, Stephen Cheburet and Sylvia Wanjohi, were sentenced to 30 years and 24 years in prison, respectively. The officers' informant, Peter Ngugi, who is believed to have facilitated Kimani's murder, was sentenced to 20 years in jail. The defendants have two weeks to appeal. Under Kenyan law, death sentences are commuted to life imprisonment, but a 2017 ruling by Kenya Supreme Court gave judges the discretion to decide whether a death sentence can still be imposed. Rights activists say at the time of murders, Kimani was defending Mwenda, a motorbike rider who had allegedly been shot by the police. Kimani's murder brought attention to the ongoing issue of extrajudicial killings by police in Kenya. The Kenya National Commission on Human Rights says at least 94 people were killed extrajudicially by police in 2022. President William Ruto has said such killings must end. Victoria Amunga for VOA News, Nairobi. The French news agency AFP says leaders of the East African community are expected to travel to Burundi on Saturday for a summit on the conflict in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. No official announcement has been made, but a diplomatic source confirmed the meeting to the news service and said that DRC's president, Felix Tshisekedi, would attend. It's not clear which other leaders will participate. The mineral-rich region has been plagued by conflict for decades. In the past two years, the ethnic Hutu-backed M23 militia has seized wide sections of the territory. Rwanda denies allegations from U.N. From UN experts, the DRC and other governments that is supporting the group. Despite the recent U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington and visits to Africa by high-level U.S. officials, including Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's meeting in Pretoria last week with South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, Russia seems to have outmaneuvered the United States on the continent. So says veteran journalist and author Joyce M. Davis, opinion editor of the Penn Live and president of the World Affairs Council in Pennsylvania. Joyce says South Africa greeted Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov with open arms on his recent tour. She explains to VOA's Carol Van Dam why South Africa and other African countries are ignoring the Biden administration's call to treat Russia as a global pariah. And it was a little startling uh, to see how warmly greeted uh, Lavrov was in South Africa. Um, and, and, and I think there there's probably an explanation, a clear explanation. It's the historic ties. It's Russia was supportive of the ANC and, you know, the movements against apartheid and all of that. And so they're not just going to slap them away. Right. Um, and and they're not just going to be puppets necessarily of what the U.S. may want. So so somehow we can get that a little bit right. But these others, I mean, the supports that and the, the, the outstretched arms that they've been greeting these other places is clearly because um, these authoritarian leaders want support themselves. They want a strong ally and they found it. They found it with Vladimir Putin, who does not, uh, you know, require anything like human rights or anything like anything for his friendship. So uh, that's kind and of that the, you say it probably that's the difference between the yeah. U.S. 
and our counterparts in Russia, we do expect that in return. Well, see, ex- ex- exactly. This is look, and it's not to say that the U.S. is an angel, has always done the right thing, and still doesn't sometimes gets things wrong. But I think the point is, we do have scruples. And we do force our leaders and our foreign policy, you know, uh, officials to have some scruples and to be accountable. Russia and Vladimir Putin have none. They have they don't care if they are massacring their people. And in fact, there are some reports that their Wagner mercenaries might help them do it. You know, so again, we're looking at, unfortunately, the United States and the West being a little bit at a disadvantage because we do have some sense of morality. We, you know, we do hold our leaders accountable for what happens in other countries at our behest. And nobody's doing that with Vladimir Putin. In the UN, 28 African countries voted to condemn Russia, not a majority. As the war reaches its one-year mark and the U.S. is making a more concerted push in African nations to get on board, do you expect sentiments to change, be a little movement? Well, you know, you you never know. I mean, um, the United States has made a very good um, point of helping some African leaders realize that some of the hardships, including the food shortages that they are facing, is because of the war. Um, it's because of what Putin is doing. People are also, they're also watching very carefully. I mean, it's not like Vladimir Putin is having and Russian troops are having that much great success in Ukraine, right? This thing, there's even reports that you could be losing. So <laughs> Russia could be losing. So they're seeing all of that. So I can't say that I don't expect to see some movement away uh, in some quarters. But what, I guess the point is that there are many still authoritarian leaders who need support. They need weapons. And, and, and Russia is willing to give them those weapons because guess what? Russia is looking for revenue. It's looking for perhaps access to gold mines, diamond mines, all of those things, cobalt, that uh, it can use to try to offset some of the sanctions that have been placed on the country since its invasion uh, with Ukraine and even before. But some countries, I do think, will will move in another direction. It just depends upon, um, you know, the developments as we go forward in Ukraine. That's uh, Joyce M. Davis, veteran author and journalist and president of the World Affairs Council. She was speaking to my colleague, Carol Van Dam, from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. You're listening to Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America in South Africa. President Cyril Ramaphosa has been at the helm of the continent's most industrialized economy for more than five years and will give his sixth State of the Nation address next week. But as the country lurches from crisis to crisis, including devastating blackouts, mass unemployment and poverty and spiking crime, there's mounting dissatisfaction with the man who promised in 2018 to lead South Africa's rebirth. Darren Taylor reports... Cyril Ramaphosa, a former trade unionist turned wealthy businessman, rose to the presidency on a wave of optimism. He promised reform after almost a decade of corruption and mismanagement under former President Jacob Zuma. Ramaphosa promised structural economic transformation, but the unemployment rate's risen and is among the highest in the world. 
He promised to rejuvenate cities and towns led by his African National Congress, the ANC. But most are bankrupt, with basic services crumbling. Every day, millions in South Africa have no electricity and water. In a meeting with journalists on Thursday, Ramaphosa said the ANC leadership conference in December had revolutionized the organization. I have a lot of confidence in the membership of the African National Congress. So this is now, if you like, a new game. This is now a new process, an invigorated process, a renewed ANC that is also going to lead forward with uniting the African National Congress. Anne Bernstein, director of the Center for Development Enterprise, says the president's commitment to uniting the ANC at all costs has sent South Africa into a death spiral. He knew there were people in his security establishment in 2018 who were, I don't know the right word, let's call them traitors, not committed to the constitution or to peace or his presidency. And even after 2021 and a failed insurrection and his own panel report, we've yet to see anyone senior charged or subject to disciplinary action. That is a consequence of not wanting to break up the ANC. He has people in his cabinet who are incompetent. There are allegations of corruption against many people, but they remain. There are also allegations of corruption against Ramaphosa. He says he's innocent. He has said there are criminals in the ANC, but says investigations are complex and will take time. I used to be badgered. I used to be attacked. When they would say, go and arrest people, go and put them in jail. And I said, that's not my job. My job is to ensure that we put institutions in place, we get right people, and they should then do their work. They are now doing their work. People are now being arrested, and the process is now underway. Critics note only two senior ANC officials have been charged, both opposed to the president. Bernstein, who formerly supported Ramaphosa, says he's doing what Zuma did, protecting loyalists and rewarding them with jobs. Ramaphosa has countered critics by saying the ANC is proving its worth by, for example, cutting red tape so independent power producers can help end the electricity crisis. But, says Bernstein, Ramaphosa lacks the courage to defy political partners opposed to privatizing services the government no longer can provide. This country needs change if we're going to get people out of poverty. I think we need an effective state that concentrates on doing the basics, and I would free up the market, which is one of the few areas with capacity as the state collapses around us. I would free up the market and entrepreneurs to do as much as they possibly can. However, powerful socialists in the ANC alliance have threatened to withdraw their support for the party if it opens up more sectors now run by the government to private competition. That would risk a loss at the polls for the ANC next year. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. 
A human rights group in Burkina Faso is accusing the army of killing at least 25 civilians in the eastern part of the country. According to the French news agency AFP, a group called the Collective of Communities Against Impunity and Stigmatization, CISC, attributed the deaths to the Burkinabi Defense and Security Forces. The group says the killings took place as a convoy of more than 100 vehicles traveled through three areas on Wednesday. The CISC alleges that 12 people were killed in the village of Sakoni, seven in Piga, and six in the hamlet of Kakangu. The human rights group is calling for an independent investigation. There has been no response to the allegations by authorities. The army has been fighting an Islamic insurgency linked to Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group for two years that has killed thousands and displaced two million people. Campaigns are in full swing for Nigeria's February 25th presidential election, and some Nigerians are taking a look at how parties are getting their messages out. Mike Bonnier reports from Port Harcourt. Nigeria has strict rules for election campaigning. For instance, until September, Independent Electoral Commission of Nigeria, or INEC, banned political campaigning by parties and their candidates. INEC also has warned the parties to avoid using abusive language against opponents and the commission advised parties and candidates to focus on issues in their campaigns. With the first ballot to be cast on February 25th in the presidential and national assembly elections, some Nigerians have mixed reactions to the campaigns. Patrick Samuel is a political analyst in Portacot. Um, actually, um, I would say on the one hand, I'm, I'm impressed by candidates themselves. However, I'm also not um, impressed about the behavior of followership. Now, there have been cases of um, toggery, you know, shooting of guns, harassment of politicians across the country. And uh, we need to address that presently. And the, the oppressive uh, apparatus of government need to be alert so they can suppress this new development in the polity. Samuel says he's impressed with the way the parties have been selling their points to the people. Dr. Kamde Benjamin, a Portacot-based businessman, however, sees the campaigns in a different way. So far, it has not met my own expectations because uh, I was expecting the parties to come up with issues that relate to the problems facing Nigerians. But what we see right now is accusations and counter accusations and uh, things that does not have any bearing to the welfare of Nigerians. Benjamin calls on relevant Nigerian security agencies to check reported violence at campaign venues to prevent injuries. Housewife Susan Wine is disappointed that the parties and candidates have not spoken about gender-related issues in their campaigns. As women, we have observed and discovered that it haven't really been issue-based. Rather, it's been hateful species here and there from these politicians, causing them to lose focus of 
what they really supposed to tell the populace. And for these reasons, we are all discouraged, especially the women, because we haven't really heard much from them in line with what they have or what they have put in their mandate for the women. Winner says, however, a few candidates have spoken about their programs for women during private visits to their campaign offices. The electoral body says campaigns for the presidential and national assembly races will end at midnight on February 23rd. The governorship and state assembly elections are set for March 11, and those campaigns will end on March 9th. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Portacot, Nigeria. Dr. Shedrak Best is an associate professor of political science and conflict resolution at Joss University, Nigeria. He tells VOA's Douglas Mpuga that despite the insecurity, elections in Nigeria will proceed as has happened in the past. I know that there are security challenges in Nigeria, but uh, we have had elections in the past amidst similar or perhaps worse security factors involved. If you look at, for instance, uh, the 2015 elections, uh, the electoral umpire, the Independent National Electoral Commission, had to postpone the elections because of uh, insecurity, particularly the one coming from Boko Haram insurgents in the northeast. The elections took place and the results were declared. If you look at 2019, it was a similar situation. Uh, there were security challenges all over the country. And even in a state like Borno or in a state like Yobe, in spite of the insurgency, elections still took place in, in those states. So I believe that uh, the 2023 elections coming in about two weeks or three weeks at most will still go ahead in spite of these challenges. What is uh, trending at the moment is the IPOP uh, attacks on offices belonging to the Electoral Commission in the southeastern part of the country. Uh, but that, again, is, is going to be a challenge, but I believe it's surmountable. The elections will still hold. On, will still hold. So I am very confident that uh, whatever difficulties there are, and indeed there are difficulties, I would not would not stop these elections from happening uh, in any significant manner. Because cumulatively, uh, it is, uh, one may argue that the larger part of the Nigerian nation is peaceful and ready for the elections. Because if nothing else, I think people are anxious to witness a regime change through the, the democratic process. The Electoral Commission, uh, uh, we have reports that some ballot papers were being destroyed in some parts of Nigeria by the pro-Biafra separatist group. That aside, the Electoral Commission, how confident are you that it's able to carry out its role properly? Well, I think uh, the Commission did express concern about what's happening, but I believe that the Commission is capable, has the capacity to overcome those problems. This will not be the first time that the Commission is being challenged but you know what? Even if uh, elections are, are hampered in some parts of the southeast, because it's not in the entire uh, area of the south of the Igbo uh, pro Biafra movement that you are having these protests, even if 
you have in pockets of these areas, it is not going to alter the landscape in such a manner that the elections will be aborted. And uh, I believe that the commission is uh, having plan B about how to bypass some of these challenges. I know that there are people who don't want the elections, and this is why they are destroying sensitive materials and burning offices belonging to the Electoral Commission. But I'm confident that it's not going to uh, it's not going to hamper or stop the elections from taking place. That was Dr. Shedrick uh, from Jose University, Nigeria, speaking with VOA's Douglas Mpuga. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Pete Hunley, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.